From the home studios of the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT, this is Teach Lab, a podcast about the art and craft of teaching. I'm Justin Reich. This is our first book club highlights episode. This fall, I released a new book, Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education, that tries to look at the past of education technology to understand where we are now and where we might head in the future. Each week, we've hosted a book club uh, with guests coming in to talk about each of the 10 chapters of the book. Um, and we've had some really great conversations that we wanted to share with our Teach Lab audience. Um, to help me do that, I've invited my friend and colleague and inveterate uh, education technology writer, Audrey Waters, to join us. Audrey, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. So in our first book club session, we were joined by Chris Gilliard, who's a professor of English at Maycomb Community College. And it was actually Audrey who introduced me to Chris and Chris's work, although I realized uh, once I met him that I was very familiar with him from Twitter, not because I followed him, um, but because his work was retweeted and found its way into my timeline so often. Um, Audrey, what inspired you to invite Chris to the book club? I think that Chris is one of the most important voices when it comes to thinking about privacy um, in education, education technology, and in technology in general. One of the things that's also important is that too often, I think we, when we have education conversations, we tend to not really recognize where most students are in school. And at higher, in higher education, most students are at community colleges. We have a lot of discussions, you know, with folks from, you know, schools like MIT. And really what, what most, you know, what, where most students are attending is more like a Maycomb Community College. So I thought Chris was a great person to talk about perhaps a different, a different kind of set of issues than, per, than often gets highlighted. Yeah, different set of issues and a, and a different set of perspectives that often get highlighted. But, you know, you're exactly right that if you read the New York Times or the Washington Post, you will have um, you know, a steady diet of information about Stanford and Yale and Harvard and MIT and Penn um, and, and come to the belief that most college students are four-year students enrolled in residential programs um, when the vast majority of people involved in higher education in the U.S. are working class adults who are, you know, fitting things in around their jobs and, and other kinds of things. Um, so the core argument of the introduction is that if you wanna understand the future of education and education technology, you should look to the past because education systems are conservative um, and they're not conservative because teachers and educators are lazy or can't think of new and interesting ideas. It's because school systems are immensely complex and they balance lots of competing goals and needs and incentives and stakeholders and they're actually pretty well optimized um, as the machine learning folks would say for meeting that set of constraints. And when people come in uh, claiming that they can dramatically change some part of the system, they often are underestimating uh, how, how much they can mess things up in other parts of the delicate balances that are created by that system. Um, so the book is broken up into two parts. Um, in the first part of the book, we look at um, a series of technologies that are about learning at scale, learning environments with many, many learners and few experts to guide them. Um, we look at instructor-guided things like massive open online courses. We look at algorithm-guided things like intelligent tutors. We look at 
peer-guided network learning communities like Scratch or the original Connectivist massive open online courses. And we look at these things because new technologies are usually not actually all that new. Um, they usually largely borrow from their older lineages. So if we can make some sense of what previous generations of technology have done, how they fit into existing systems, how efficacious they've been in terms of learning, then we can make some good guesses about what new entrants will look like. Um, and then in the second half of the book, uh, I argue that all of these technologies get hobbled in their usefulness by four kinds of dilemmas um, that show up over and over again. The curse of the familiar, the EdTech Matthew effect, the trap of routine assessment, and then the toxic power of data and experiment. And those are dilemmas that we'll talk about throughout the book club um, to try to see if these are areas where education technology runs into friction in trying to be um, useful and helpful and ethical um, and see what we can do to try to address some of those frictions, both in technology design and in the way that we manage educational communities, schools and colleges and other things like that um, to be able to use these new technologies. So that's what the introduction to the book is trying to do. Um, I think there were two parts of the conversation that we had that really stood out to me. Um, Chris talked about school as a place where people watch and are watched. Um, and I thought it was just a great description because I think one of the things that's happened during the pandemic is that I'm certainly realizing more and more things that are just in in the everyday water of schools and you know the most taken for granted parts of what we do in schools that when you translate them into online environments they operate very very differently um, watching someone while you're sitting in a room with them is a very different experience from watching them in a little box on a video conference call and those differences there I mean, parts of them are subtle because you know parts of video conferencing work you can see the other person um, but you can't see them and you can't watch in the same way and you can't be watched in the same way um, so that was an idea uh, that sparked a lot of thinking to me about what online learning can and can't do during a pandemic and beyond now let's play a clip from our conversation with Chris You know, as I mentioned, I'm like interested in um, privacy and surveillance, and I one of the things you mentioned in the book is how um, school as an institution serves multiple functions, and like one of those functions is like to watch people, you know, um, and I'm really interested in how that uh, that function, which is not always uh, openly stated, but as like uh, ed tech. Um, more and more kind of ed tech moves in from other industries, you know, whether that's prison or, um, you know, platforms or whatever, like that surveillance aspect gets um, magnified and more um, openly articulated. Um, Chris, will you, will you say more about the sentence that you said before, which I found very compelling because I don't think I've ever thought about it this way. A purpose of school is to watch people. Like, what do, you, what do you mean by that? What are some examples of that? Yeah, I mean, uh, so, I mean, well, I mean, one, for one, the pandemic highlighted that, um, that it's a place where kids go because their parents have to go to work. You know, I mean, it's a place where kids get fed. It's like, you know, like all these things. Um, it's, 
you know, and I, I mean, as an educator, I don't want to overstate this, right? I, I mean, I believe strongly in education, but um, it is a place where um, people, in some ways, it's, it, it holds people until they are adults, you know? Um, and I'm trying, to, I'm trying to state that in the least offensive way possible. Um, and so, but I mean, watch, you know, in all the different ways you might think about it. I mean, um, watch as in oversee, watch as in take care of, you know, um, watch as in monitor, you know. Um, and so that is often, it's a, a function that's not, um, I, I think, again, the pandemic has really highlighted the extent to which that is true. Um, but I also think that um, most people understood that to some extent or another, but a lot of ed tech and we could, it could be the LMS or it could be, you know, cameras in, in schools or whatever it is like that surveillance function like is, has really um, blossomed, not the right word, but um, in the last. Blossomed in the way that like kudzu blossomed. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in like the last 10 and years. Poisoned mushrooms blossomed too. Yeah. What do you think, Audrey? You know, I often say that one of the things that EdTech does is it confuses surveillance for care. Um, and I think that we see this with the kinds of watching that um, most EdTech does. It really does, as Chris says, crank up a certain, ki a certain kind of monitoring and I think tries to convince people that it's in the service of caring for students. We have to, you know, we need to make sure that they're safe. We need to make sure that they're, um, you know, not planning, not going to harm themselves or other students. We have to make sure that they're not cheating, but it's not, it's, it's so different than the kinds of caring relationships that are um, built between people. When you have that, when you have that ed tech mediation in between, it really is, mostly surveillance. I was talking with some educators about the experience of parents who don't speak English in schools. And one of their concerns in serving these families was that an enormous number of the difficulties that these families run into can be mediated by administrative assistance in schools. Um, most school buildings have a receptionist with a human being at the front of it. And you can go to that person with like a wide variety of concerns and issues. And they can say, oh, oh, I know the person who speaks that language. I've got a person who can connect you with that family there. Like we can use a few kind of broken translator words to get you the information that you need to fix some particular problem. Um, and it's exactly the kind of interaction which if you dramatically oversimplify it, you think that you could replace with technology. You could say, oh, I bet administrative assistants, you know, they, you know, 85% of their queries are about people who are tardy to school. You know, let's, let's replace that with a text bot or something like that. Um, not realize, you know, and then, well, why don't we just translate, you know, X percent of the documents into these languages and then that'll cover a bunch of the rest of the queries. You know, not realizing how much subtlety and nuance or, or even, you know, how important it is that when you come in with a question that you think 
is going to be perceived as a silly question. It's not just getting the answer to it. It's having someone with a smile on the other end saying, no, 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 no. We're going to make sure that your kids are okay. Um, all of those kinds of other parts of the communication, which are like every bit as important as what's being communicated. And it's, and it's all that kind of nuance and subtlety and humanity that gets lost. But I think a, a, an incredibly powerful way to summarize it is replacing care with surveillance or replacing care with communication. Um, that's very helpful. And then the second conversation that I thought was a really useful piece of criticism was Audrey pushing back on describing technologies as learning at scale sort of along the lines of scale is a value that entrepreneurs have, that venture capitalists have, and they often think about scale differently, um, and I think in less productive ways than educators think about scale. And, you know, certainly one of the big themes of the book is that you, you can't achieve meaningful scale in education technology through distribution if you scale anything up in a way that really makes a difference, it's because you've scaled communities. It's because you've scaled networks of teachers and educators who come up with better ideas about how to do teaching and learning with technology. Um, but Audrey, I thought made a very sensible point that scale is a word that really has some salience and some resonance in people who think about about scale the first way um, and the very adoption of the term can put the conversation sort of in that framing on those terms and it might be worthwhile doing some more thinking about um, if, if what I'm really interested in is scale through community maybe scale isn't even the right word to be using from the beginning. Let's listen to what you had to say. Uh, this is I'm, we're maybe jumping ahead to some of the other parts that we were thinking of doing during during the book yeah, club, sort of the stump the chump thing. But oh. this is one of the things I would oh. like to push back at you, <laughs> Justin, is this idea of scale. And I know like learning at scale is kind of your jam, but like for me, like that's the problem with like this word scale, right? Is that like is some is the scale mean something different than public education? Does scale mean something different than adequately coming up with the funding, public funding, taxpayer-supported funding that supports access for everybody to, um, to, have an edu to have educational opportunities. Does scale mean something different than open, for example? And um, if not, why not? And if so, like what, is, like what, what does it mean to talk about learning at scale versus, for example, uh, public education. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I get, you know, I guess learning at scale for me is, um, there are lots of learning environments with many, many learners and few experts to guide them. Um, and, you know, some of the ones historically have been, you know, printed books and printed textbooks. Um, some of which have been integrated in a variety of ways into public education systems. Um, and some of them have been deliberately ways of creating new pathways into higher education, like the, or, or into education, like the Harvard classics. Um, you know, this sort of like library of books that uh, one of the Harvard presidents publishes in the early 20th century, which says like, yeah, you know, read these like 50 books. And this is like basically as good as um, a Harvard education is, and it will be free and accessible and so forth. Um, uh, you know, children's television as another mechanism, which is, you know, about serving many, many learners with few experts to guide them. Um, 
and you know the the availability of the internet just creates lots of new pathways for these kinds of large-scale learning environments to exist which build on existing efforts but are not exactly the same as sort of existing technologies you know the the the, the proliferation of adaptive tutors of massive open online courses of peer learning communities they seem to be to be you know, things that are, that are not quite like books and television, that they have a different set of affordances. I suppose, you know, I think it comes back to my kind of like somewhat pragmatic optimism that like, we could build these things and we could build terrible things with them, or we could build great things with them. Um, and it's going to matter a lot. You know, I think a point where we agree, it's going to matter a lot. Like what is the political economy in which we generate these things? You know, a political economy in which we have very robust support for public education, for public higher education, is one in which we're gonna build technologies and people are gonna be like, cool, this can slot in here. This is how we can prepare people extra for these things or stuff like that. Um, and then, uh, um, you know, and then I think there are other, you know, there are other political economies, like including the one that we're in, particularly in higher education, you know, with kind of austerity and adjunctification, um, where as we shrink, um, as we shrink higher education, you know, we, we shrink like the value of what we can generate. Um, I mean, I will also say that like some of the artifact of being interested in learning at scale too, um, is, you know, one of the things that I was interested in doing with the book, which I think like the vast majority of the public is not particularly interested in. It's so weird that it's still in there. Um, but I, you know, I just observed that there are like different communities of people that study things that try to operate at scale. You know, so I propose these three genres of learning at scale that we're gonna read about in the next few weeks. Um, you know, instructor guided things, algorithm guided things, and peer guided things. And I observe that like, it tends to be different communities of people who build and study these things. Um, but I actually think they have a bunch of similar kinds of challenges and problems. And so part of what learning at scale is meant to do is to be like, oh, well, let's get people to, to come together and say like, oh, well, maybe there's some things about making more equitable technologies that folks in Scratch have figured out that might be useful for the people who are working at edX or Khan Academy or other kinds of things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes, and then sometimes I think like, that is a, like a weird piece of like scholarly politics to try to weave into your book, Justin, like most people are not going to find that helpful or interesting. Um, but you can, uh, you can find bits of piece in there. I don't know, Audrey, does that help at all? Or Chris, do you have reactions to, to that as what learning at scale is? Go ahead, Audrey. I'm still trying to process it. So go ahead, Audrey. If you... No, I mean, I think, I think that, I mean, I think you're right. I'm pushing at you purposefully, but I do think, I mean, I do think that it matters in some ways though, how much we let these narratives, again, like we're circling back on things again, but how much these sort of powerful narratives seem to seize particularly imaginations of politicians and administrators, right? That, that there's something about these, tech, these techno fantasies that really resonate, that really resonate. I mean, I just remember the, you know, during the year of the MOOC, um, the ways in which um, people lost their minds, administrators um, lost their minds. I remember when they, you know, the Virginia uh, UVA fired its- uh, the, My alma mater. Yeah, the, the board fired the, the president because they thought that she wasn't moving quickly enough and all of the, you know, the David Brooks op-eds and um, sort of saying like, this is, this is it, this is the end, everyone get on board, you know, this uh, higher ed will never be the same, it's the end of college as we know it, I think TechCrunch pronounced and it was 
very much part of this narrative that you could sort of see be, be really crafted and repeated by, by people who might have had a background in teaching, um, teaching machines to think, um, but didn't really necessarily have a background in teaching humans to learn. Um, and so it was, you know, it's such a, so it's such a powerful, politically so powerful. So, so one, one way I might reinterpret your critique is something like, Justin, it was the charismatics who invented this at scale phrase. Why are you using Because the frame gives them a privileged higher ground. I, I, that's a great critique and one I hadn't thought of. And I hope that, that people will keep thinking about that too. Audrey, do you have another term uh, with the benefit of hindsight and reflection that you think would be a better one? Uh, public education. <laughs> I'm being slightly facetious, but not really, actually. I mean, I think it is a commitment. It is a commitment. And perhaps it is the same commitment to make sure that everybody has access to, um, to education, to high quality education. But to me, it's like, how do we talk about, uh, how do we talk about the funding mechanism? How do we talk about building capacity politically, socially, not just how do we build capacity technologically, which uh, to me, that scale piece really seems to put its thumb, put its thumb right there on the scale, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that technology for ed tech in particular for a very long time has sort of been, been promised and seen as, if not a silver bullet, then certainly some a necessity that we simply must have in order to move our classrooms forward in, you know, into the 21st century. Uh, I think it's worth pushing back on that. I think it's worth pushing back on the kind of cheerleading and the lack of the sort of uncritical cheerleading that too, hop, too often has happened. If we buy iPads, things will be better. If we buy uh, computers, things will be better. As long as students are doing digital work, it's better than the analog work. And I think it's worth, always worth asking questions about, uh, about the vendors that come to school to sell, to sell their products and the vision that they have they have for the future as well. We can think about the kind of vision of the future that uh, Facebook has. You know, Facebook says it's about building community. Um, but we can look at the reality and, and see that actually Facebook's been quite detrimental to community. Facebook's been quite detrimental to democracy. And I think we have to ask those same kind of questions for ed tech that promises to make things you know, better, faster, cheaper. Um, what if we're actually adopting things that are detrimental to democracy? Yeah. In the, during the year of the MOOC, um, one of the more popular, uh, perhaps better venture funded uh, startups was Udacity, founded by uh, Sebastian Thrun, uh, artificial intelligence researcher at Stanford slash Google. And he set out to prove by partnering with San Jose State University that his online courses would be better, cheaper, faster than the kinds of courses that San Jose State offered. And, and the experiment failed, and it failed rather dramatically. The students who took the Udacity courses at San Jose State did much more poorly than the students who took the regular, uh, regular classes at the school. And it, that's important for a number of, of reasons. Obviously, nobody likes to come up with an ed tech intervention in which 
uh, people do worse. But it's also important that San Jose State um, Public University in California is actually one of the most ethnically um, diverse uh, universities in the country. And so it wasn't just sort of it was wasn't just sort of students broadly speaking did worse. These were these were students of color who did worse. This was actually an intervention that the TechCrunch, for example, promised would end higher education as we know it, and actually did real damage to, to students in the classes. Yes, I, th I think that's exactly right. Um, let's play the clip. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is that we're stuck with um, technology invented by people who actually didn't think about those questions. Hmm. Um, so like the, the big example I'm working, you know, I like, uh, you know, uh, I'm using now is like the whole thread that went around, you know, Twitter and made it into a bunch of different magazines about zoom backgrounds and how often people with dark skin, their face is not picked up in a, when you use a virtual background. And, um, there's a, I think he's an educational technologist who, um, posted a thread on this and he literally like posted his head, you know, and he's a, a, a bald, um, I appears to be white guy and he has a virtual background and it works fine. Um, and then his, uh, his, uh, a faculty member who was seeking his assistance is, um, what appears to be a dark skinned black male. And so he like, looks like the headless horseman. Like, so it's just like a body and no head. And um, so like, and Zoom, I mean, it's been in, you know, um, so like the people, well, I'll, I'll shorten this to, to uh, the people who made Zoom didn't think about these things. Um, they didn't think about harassment. They didn't think about Zoom bombing. Like they didn't, you know, there's all these things they didn't. And so it's a difficult question to do risk reward because it's um, forces that question onto the user when um, those questions should have been asked and answered or addressed or at least, you know, sort of gamed out to some extent way before that. And now we're just kind of stuck using technology that wasn't invented for us or by or for the purpose in which people are using it. I mean, it comes back actually to some of the things I'm interested in this, in this um, introduction, Justin, is sort of like, what is it? Is there something about is it the culture? Is it about the disciplinary training that technologists have? Um, is it something about this idea of wanting to engineer society or engineer school that, that leads, I think, leads us to sort of end up with these technologies being built by people who haven't thought about these things? I mean, what is, you know, it, how, do, how do we get here with the folks with, with the sort of engineering crowd um, missing the boat so dramatically on on these questions that um, well it's I, you know I, th I think that's a, you know you're asking great questions about so Chris introduces us to this idea that the technologies that we use in education are often not designed by educators and therefore they don't even have a hope of having these considerations because zoom was designed for people who were thinking about like board meetings and you know corporate meetings and things like that and um, there wouldn't be any black people on the board so yes. right <laughs> yes. and, and, you know, yeah. We know from research that uh, disciplinary practices at school, for example, tend to be uh, very, uh, 
to 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 play out in ways that uh, are biased against students of color. Uh, black girls, in particular, end up being expelled, uh, suspended at far far higher rate than white girls. Uh, and so if we think about what are the practices that already happen in schools, what are the ways in which racial bias already happens in schools, we have to ask them what happens when we add technology to the mix. What happens when we actually have very little insight into the decision-making practices that go into these algorithms, right? And so if we know, for example, that schools make decisions that are biased, and then we know that schools are building or adopting technology on top of this, that's often built with data uh, that would reflect that bias, uh, are we going to see a tech sort of reinscribe and actually maybe even obscure um, some of some of the bias uh, just because we we can't we can't actually look at the ways in which these algorithms were crafted. We don't know why Twitter makes the uh, decisions that it does because we have no insight into the Twitter algorithm. We have no insight into the Facebook algorithm. We have no insight into the algorithms that schools use in the in their ed tech as well. I think when people look back on 2020, they're going to recognize it as an extraordinary demonstration of the durability and conservatism of education systems. You know, for the most part, in colleges, in secondary schools, faculty members walked away from their lecterns and they sat down in front of their webcams and they te kept teaching roughly the way they were doing before. And to the extent that they had to make adaptations, they were mostly focused on making those adaptations in ways that aligned with cohered with what they were doing before. Um, you know, that there were like, however many dozens of panels about reinventing education and reimagining education and those kinds of things. Um, but it's not overwhelmingly what happened on the ground. And people can critique that. You could say that, you know, trying to do school as we were doing it during a pandemic makes no sense. Um, or people can celebrate that maybe we maintain this continuity because we actually in schools do the best job we can in large public, you know, that there's room for improvement, but there's not sort of dramatic new forms out there that are going to be tremendously better. But for me, as someone who tries to help schools get better by starting from, all right, what does the evidence say about the reality of schools? Um, I think it really does put the onus on people who are imagining, you know, huge transformations in education systems to be able to answer the question, all right, but if this is what happened during a global pandemic, why do you think that there's some other time in which we would dramatically reorganize our society around, you know, the education in our society around new technologies to make that work? Um, I, th I think it's good evidence that, you know, instead of trying to massively reshape our systems, we're better off um, realizing that really good education is an education that gets a, a thousand little things right. And we should keep trying to get those pieces more and more right over time. Audrey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Justin. Looking forward to more conversations in the weeks ahead. That was Audrey Waters reflecting on our book club conversation with Chris Gilliard. Special thanks to Chris Gilliard and Audrey Waters for being part of our first live book club session for Failure Disrupt. 
If you'd like to see the full conversation, you can find the full webinar on our Teaching Systems Lab YouTube page. I'm Justin Reich. Thanks for listening to Teach Lab. Please subscribe to Teach Lab to get future episodes on how educators from all walks of life are tackling distance learning during COVID-19. As you probably know by this point, I've released a new book, Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education, available from booksellers everywhere. You can read reviews, related media, and sign up for online events at failuretodisrupt.com. That's failuretodisrupt.com. This episode of Teach Lab was produced by Amy Corrigan and Garrett Beasley, recorded in sound mix by Garrett Beasley. Stay safe until next time.